Welcome back, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully it wasn't too much. I actually only think it was a couple seconds. So, you know, I got a little nervous there because I jumped back in the studio. But here, of course, with Tony Felder, lots going on in this hour. We're going to hear from Steve Braun. We're actually going to give him a call in a little bit. And then we're also going to hear from Dustin Moore, former outfielder for the Rockies, amongst other teams, twins, stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I, I felt like I, let, I left you off a little bit when it came to the Yankees. I want to get you your last thoughts out here, man. Need to make a splash. This, uh, a bigger splash than Euclid's. A bigger splash than signing up Ichiro and all the rest of the players, the one-year deals. Just We need to have guys that's going to – somebody's going to replace Jeter. We need somebody that's going to be a, a decent catcher to replace Posada. You know, we, we need guys that's going to step up, that have the New York attitude, the, the, the swag, as they say now, uh, of New York. And right now – I, I don't see it. Like I, I don't feel it. I would see the Yankees or, or look at the Yankees signings and past and be like, okay, okay, we got a chance at the World Series. Now I look at the roster now and I'm like, okay, well maybe maybe we might make the playoffs. But what Toronto did, Toronto stole the, the Yankees swagger. They went out, signed the players, got what they can get. They well got a, a lot from Miami. Miami gave up everything, just emptied the cupboard out, and Toronto benefited from that. And the Yankees should look at that and say, okay, well, they're going to be the beast of the East next year, so we got to do something to counteract that. Like, you remember, you remember when the Yankees were disciplined hitters? They would have 10 at bat, uh, ten pitch at bats, 11 pitch at bat. And last year, I didn't see none of that. I didn't see the discipline. I don't know whether it was just Girardi's managing style or, or what. I don't know what happened with that. I was very disappointed in that. And I was very disappointed in the playoffs. I was very let down. And I don't know what happened. Like, it's hard to figure it out. Like, with the A-Rod thing, sit him or play him, sit him or play him. Everybody's like, well, you know, sit him, he wasn't hitting. Then the guys they put in for him didn't do any better. I mean, Raul Ibanez was our savior. Now, nah, listen, dude, I don't I don't think you could have made up what, what he did in a movie. I mean, no. honestly, his, his performance was absolutely unbelievable. But um, listen, man, we're definitely going to get a lot more about the Yankees. Um, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to send my call out to uh, Stevie Braun. I just want to make sure I got the right number in. You know, apologize for the stupidity of me, but I, you know, I don't want to call some random, you know, kid that's sitting there with her mom or something. I just want to make sure I got the phone number right. But we're gonna we're gonna dial right in and see if we could get Stevie Braun. Of course, Steve Braun, a longtime uh, major league player with the the Twins, and of course known for his years with the St. Louis Cardinals, and uh, you know. We'll hopefully get Stevie up on the program here. Past ball show, so John Pielli. And uh, is this Stevie, right? Yeah, you got him. Hey, welcome to the show, man. Appreciate you having a couple minutes today, my friend. Yeah, no problem. I'm glad we could hook up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely, man. Now, now looking, looking through your career, obviously you had, a, you had a long, successful career from the 70s into the mid-80s. But it's kind of a tale of two different careers. You know, you got a chance to play, you know, the majority of the time when you're in Minnesota. And then you play out that different role that you had in St. Louis, kind of as a pinch hitter, Whitey Herzog's primary guy off the bench. Tell us a little bit about the tale of your two different careers. Well, obviously, uh, it was fun in both both roles were, were fun, but there's nothing like winning and uh, at that level. And in St. Louis, I had that, like you said, that limited role for five years coming off the bench and uh, but we had a real, some really good ball clubs. Uh, we won the World Series in 82, and we were in the World Series and lost the Royals in 85. Um, 
and we, we competed uh, in the strike year, 81, too. So there's nothing like I said, there's nothing like winning, but uh, but it's also fun playing. But <laughs> So if you ask me which which I like best, it's tough to – it's tough to put a finger on it, but uh, I enjoyed both uh, both uh, uh, parts of my career. Like you said, it was two different careers, really. Now, listen, that makes a lot of sense, man. Now, as you started out, your years with the Minnesota Twins, tell us what, what you think would uh, would summarize your time there. Did you ever feel like you were on any teams that were getting to the point where they were winning teams? Well, before I got there in 71, uh, they had uh, hit the – Playoffs twice, losing to the Orioles both years in '69, '70. So they had a good ball club, but and then the then uh, the '71 through '76, we we seemed like we had some some good hitters and and uh, some pretty pretty good pitching, but we just were a little short every year. Um, but uh, it was like I said, it was fun. Uh, you know, enjoyed it, and uh, it just uh, didn't work out those years. Uh, when I was in Minnesota, uh, but uh, it was it was fun playing up there. It's a great uh, great area. Yeah, no question, man. Now, as as you moved on, of course, you ended up with Seattle, Kansas City, a little bit with Toronto. Was there anything special that you felt once you became a St. Louis Cardinal? Did you feel that this was this this was a team that was going to be a championship team? Well, you got to look at the history of the Cardinals, and uh, they got a, a tremendous history. And the city of St. Louis has got some, uh, I think, some of the greatest fans uh, in baseball. You know, baseball been there a long time. They had two teams back in the '40s and '50s, uh, and before with the Browns there. So, yeah, the, the fans are very knowledgeable fans. Um, uh, so going to St. Louis is, is a, even in that limited role, you felt like you were, you, you were, you were part of history. Because, you know, Stan Musial, Red Shane Dings, Bob Gibson, Brock, you can go to name down a list of you. A lot of a lot of Hall of Famers. And so that feeling that you're with a club that's, uh, that's had a winning tradition was, was a lot of fun. And we were able to continue that tradition with the One World Series, like I said, in, uh, in 82. Yeah, now, as, as you join the team, and once again, we were talking with Steve Braun, um, was was it was it a situation where Whitey Herzog approached you about what your role was going to be there, or did you just kind of just like you know be on the team and just realize you were just going to you know come off the bench and be a primary pinch hitter? Well, actually, I I played with Whitey in Kansas City uh, in the uh, late seventies. Yes. Um, uh, so I knew what my role was going to be before I went to the Cardinals. Uh, you know, I when I got. Uh, before I went to the Cardinals, I was uh, with the Blue Jays, and then didn't sign back with them in in 1980. And I I called Whitey and I asked him about coming down and trying to make his ball club. And he said, "Yeah, well, he's looking for a pinch hitter." But he said, "Like uh, Whitey's been always very honest with me." He said, uh, "You know, I can't guarantee your spot, but I'll give you a chance to make my club." And, and uh, you can you can come off the bench for me like you did in Kansas City, and uh, added five more years onto my career um, with with, uh, with that uh, transition to to the to the, to the Cardinals. Um, but Whitey's a great guy, best manager I ever played for, and uh, actually you were hoping to bring. I'm with uh, a foundation up in your area there called Best Incorporated. It's a foundation that uh, gets um, scholarships and mentors young kids uh, yeah, through college and high school. And Whitey has agreed to come out and be part of that uh, golf tournament we're going to have next year. 
the charity golf tournament we have for benefit the foundation. So everybody here in the area should try to get into that golf tournament and get part of that uh, that uh, function we're going to have. Uh, you're going to meet a really a great guy, a really funny guy, and uh, so Whitey will be out in, in Allentown next year. Yeah, no question, man. And you know, we got to we got to stay in touch, man. I want to I want to see if maybe I could check this thing out. I think it'll be pretty cool. Um, now, now tell us a little bit about the approach that you have, you know, as a pinch hitter. Obviously, you had a chance to play every day. You got a chance with the with the Royals making a postseason in '78 to kind of get used to that role as a guy that comes off the bench. What what really goes behind it? Is it a situation where you have like a game, like you know, during the game you have a certain routine that you go through? Or is it a situation where you're on the bench, you sit there, get up, get a bat, and go get a hit? Well, actually, the routine I uh, I had started in the afternoon, uh, the preparation uh, with my batting practice and going over the uh, relief pitchers that I was going to probably have to face. And and uh, fortunately, the Cardinals had a lot of batting practice pitchers there, so I was able to keep myself sharp uh, and some of the practice pitchers could even simulate the some of the pitchers that I was going to face that night, and so that it started early in the afternoon. And then, um, you know, once the game started, you know, you're you know, you're watching the game from the bench, and you're seeing where I might fit in as the game goes on, and and then you're just moving around, keeping loose, and uh, and and just preparing yourself for when you got to go go to the plate. And, and I had a couple of different roles as a pinch hitter. One was to try to get on base as a leadoff hitter, and the other was to try to drive in a run. And because of our power, lack of power on our Cardinal team, we depend. So a lot of our games are really close, uh, low-scoring games. So um, when I got up, uh, you know, in those later innings, I was either trying to get us a runner to start a rally or uh, or drive in a run. So it was. I approached my bat uh, according to the situation, what was called for in the game. Yeah, no question about it, man. Now, and obviously, you end up doing a good job. You, you are, you're on the '82 World Series championship team. Your career finishes in 1985 in a World Series where I bet you you, you believe the Cardinals won. Am I, am I not mistaken with that? The Denkinger call. Well, I'm not saying we won, but that was a big factor. That call. Uh, was a big factor in the sixth game, late in the sixth game. It was a, it was a fall by the umpire, uh, like you mentioned, Don Manger, and uh, that would have uh, uh, the score was tied at the time. Uh, who knows what would have won after that? But that got them a runner, which ended up scoring and being a uh, game-winning uh, uh, run, run in the game. Uh, but uh, as far as pinch hitting goes, uh, you know you have to really like what you're doing, and that's why a veteran guy uh, who's been around a while accepts the role. Uh, and enjoys the challenge. Uh, to be a pinch hitter, you have to want to go up there against the best uh, pitchers in, in, in baseball at the most critical time in the game. And it starts with enjoying that confrontation between the, the best pitchers in the world and uh, and, and yourself. And uh, like I said about the Cardinal fans, and the, they, they appreciated that role that you had. I remember getting several standing ovations, uh, uh, not, not from the whole maybe 50,000, but, you know, Behind the dugout, there to get you get on base with a walk to start a rally. They give you a standing ovation. They're really knowledgeable fans. So it starts with really enjoying your role, enjoying being on a ball club, being being part of the ball, and accepting your role. Yeah, no question, man. Now uh, I'm joined by uh, Tony Felder. He's got a question for you, man. Uh, Mr. Braun, out of all your major league career, the toughest pitcher you faced? Uh, well, uh, uh, 
the toughest pitcher, although I hit this pitcher pretty well, but he was probably the toughest guy out there at the time that was Nolan Ryan. Nolan, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Nolan was, uh, you know, could, could, uh, he could throw a shutout any time. He could throw, uh, you know, he threw six no-hitters and I don't know how many one-hitters. So he could dominate a game at any time, depending on how his control was that night. So on a given night, Nolan Ryan was, uh, was, was I think, the most dominant pitcher of uh, that I faced. Uh, so, there's several others that I could throw in there. Catfish Hunter was a, was a great pitcher uh, early in my career. Uh, Sam McDowell, uh, going back to the Twins years. Uh, you know, uh, Sam Seaver. You know, they're all great, great, great pitchers. And uh, I did get to face Bob Gibson once, and uh, that was kind of an interesting. Actually, twice uh, in spring training, I, I got faced Gibson my rookie year in '71. And I hit a double the first time up down the right field line. Uh, we were playing over in St. Petersburg. And uh, the second time up, I hit another double in the right center and slid into second base and turn, and got up and brushed myself off. And there's Gibson staring at me and, uh, and kind of nodded his head like he was going to remember my face. Uh, so, <laughs> so next time up, maybe I wouldn't, wouldn't uh, feel so comfortable at the plate. Yeah, uh, that's the, but that's he had that right. reputation. But uh, – so I got a chance to face a lot of great pitchers at, at both leagues. Uh, that's another fortunate thing about my career. I, I was able to play 10 years in the American League and five in the National League. Uh, so I got a chance to see all the ballparks of the, of the time. And and uh, so I, I thought that was nice to be able to play in both leagues. Uh, now, what was like the, the the best ballpark you played in? Like the ballpark you, you, you went there, you got in the batter's box, and you just knew it, it just felt good, the best ballpark. Well, there was three of them. I'll mention all three. Uh, it's hard to say which one I like the most. I love uh, Royal Stadium. That was a beautiful stadium. It was kind of a state-of-the-art at the time. Um, and then, uh, of course, uh, Dodger Stadium was a great place to was, was a great, great place to, to go uh, and play. Uh, you know, there's always a uh, you know great crowd there and. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, kind of a state-of-the-art uh, stadium at the time, three-decked, and, uh, and they kept that place immaculate. You know, it was it was really a beautiful ballpark, and like I said, Royal Stadium, and, of course, Yankee Stadium. I was a Yankee fan growing up here in New Jersey, growing up, and so my first trip to Yankee Stadium was a very special uh, time for me. Yeah, no question about it, man. Now, you know, I, I got to ask you a question about some of, some of the Cardinal teams you played on. You know, some of the guys have been known to be a little crazy and stuff like that. Did, were, did you did you have any situations where you're just where where you you know you're with these group of guys and you're like some of these guys are nuts? Well, we we had some real clowns. You know, uh, uh, that's one thing about the Cardinals with teams. We we had we had great chemistry, and uh, I remember Joaquin Andahar <laughs> was probably one of the uh, you know guys to stand out in your mind. Uh, being a really unique individual, uh, yeah, I guess you'd put him in a crazy category. Uh, there's another guy probably not quite as well-known as Dave LaPointe. Left-handed pitcher we got from the Brewers uh, in a trade that while you pulled together. Um, he, he was a he was a clown. And, uh, yeah, it was just a great uh, – the about, thing about the uh, Cardinals, we had great defense at every position. And uh, Whitey built a team around defense and – 
and speed, and uh, so it was uh, really fun to watch those guys play from the bench every day, especially Ozzie Smith. Uh, I got a chance yeah. to play with Ozzie uh, five years and watch him do his thing in short stuff, but, uh, but we, we had our characters uh, on the team. And I'll tell you, one thing that really interests me, at least what I see from afar, is that you know you mentioned a couple times just the chemistry that they really had on those teams. And you saw how uh, Whitey Herzog pretty much turned the roster around from when he took over, you know, in the 81 to 82 when they won the World Series. And, you know, the fact that he turned the roster over so much to, to get that team competitive so quickly, I think showed, number one, that, you know, he really knew what he was doing. And number two, that he had a sense of what kind of players to bring in to keep this thing going as long as it did. Well, before Whitey got there, you know, that, that team depended a lot on power, um, yes. you know, with Simmons and, you know, a couple other, uh, you know, a couple other guys I can't think of before, before I got there, but, uh, they, uh, he turned it into a, a, a speed team because we played on AstroTurf and it was the biggest ballpark in baseball, 420 to center, you had 335 down the line and 385 in the gaps. So, and on a fast surface, so he he turned uh, our team into a speed team that, that that relied on good defense and and strong pitching and probably one of the premier uh, relievers of all time, Bruce Sutter. Um, so he, he did. He transferred transferred that team that met, built it around the ballpark he was playing in, and and that was a key to you know you got to win at home. So we we dominated some of those slower teams that that depend on power. Uh, like, for instance, the Cubs, they, they uh, built their team around power for, for um, Rigby Field, so we beat them like a drum there in St. Louis. Um, so, yeah, Whitey was real good at, uh, at, uh, at, at everybody had a role on that ball club, and everybody knew their role. And I remember Whitey saying one time, the biggest uh, headache a manager has is when your role players and bench players think they're better than the guys on the field. So when you got people on the bench who, who are complaining about playing time, you know, it makes it, makes it a headache for the manager. Uh, so everybody had their specific role. And, and Whitey used those guys uh, like a chess game during, during the, during the uh, game. He knew what, what t- player to plug in against what pitcher. Like he pinch hit me maybe one time, or maybe sometimes he pinch hit somebody else, uh, according to, how we had the history of uh, how we had done against that particular pitcher, but Whitey was a real, real ahead of his time uh, when it came to strategy, and uh, he was the first guy to to, to, to chart hitters uh, where to hit the ball, and he, and he places defense and, and put pitchers in at a particular time to face a, a particular hitter uh, to let our good defensive players. Uh, play. You know, we had we had one of the greatest infields of all time. We had Keith Hernandez at first base. We had Tommy Hurd at second, and we had Ozzy, of course, at the short. And then we had Ken Overfield. I mean, there are four really great defensive players. And Whitey, uh, one of his pitchers to do is throw strikes. And he always used to used to say, "Listen, I pay these guys a lot of money to go catch the ball. I don't want anybody walking people. Walks are the worst <laughs> thing that Whitey." Well, I'm hit, let him hit the ball. We'll catch the ball for you. We got uh, Willie McGee, premier uh, center fielder. We had uh, another guy, uh, Vince Coleman, in left field. Who, these guys are world-class sprinters. You hit the uh, the other team hit the ball in the air the, with a little fly uh, ball somewhere, so they were going to catch it if it stayed the ballpark. So that that was where he uh, 
he developed that 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 team around that ballpark. And no question about it. Listen, Steve, I appreciate all, all the commentary, and it was great having a chance to talk to you on the show. Hopefully, I could get you on sometime in the near future. That's fine, and uh, I hope I hope we can get together sometime and talk about our foundation up there. We're doing good things uh, uh, for the kids up there in the Bethlehem, uh, you know, Lehigh area, and uh, love to have you come out to our uh, function next year and uh, and maybe help you help us promote it. And Mr. Braun, is there a website that we can go to and check it out? The listeners can check out. Yeah, you could go to Best Incorporated. Uh, Bill Staples, uh, fellow lives out there in Nazareth. Uh, he's the uh, he's the head of the foundation, and uh, and I'm on his board of directors. And uh, we're doing some good things for kids up there. And uh, and so I'd love to have you guys come out and, and help us help us uh, promote it. No question, man. Listen, we'll stay in touch, and like I said, I'll definitely be in touch with Mr. Staples. So uh, great having you on the show, man. And we'll definitely talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Anytime, Bye-bye. man. That was Stevie Braun, man, and uh, listen, a great spot because uh, you know he definitely gets into what what it's like to be a pinch hitter, man. And then you know, and I and I, I did want to ask him this question, but I figured it was kind of redundant because it would answer itself. He mentioned earlier about you know being an everyday player first, and in, in my opinion, I don't think you could come into the game and be just a pinch hitter. No, you can't. like like if if he didn't if he didn't get the aspect of what it's understood to be an everyday player. Like he would not have been able to be as good of a pinch hitter as he was, and I think that's one thing that you know I certainly think that it has to be looked at in a certain way, man. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, he the way he was describing Whitey Herzog, saying Whitey Herzog was like the Bill Belichick of no, he was good, baseball, man. He man. was definitely ahead of his time, and yeah. you know I've had other play other players on the show such as uh, Tito Landrum and you know a couple of people I can't even think of, but you know a lot of times that you know the Cardinal teams under Whitey Herzog comes up on my show. And I think the more you hear about this guy, the more you realize that, listen, if, if you could clone a manager, that's a guy you want running your team. Yeah. So, listen, we're going to have to take a quick break, man. And, uh, you know, we've certainly got plenty of more going on in the show. But uh, back after this. Welcome to mtrradio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to mtrradio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. MTR. Hey everyone, this is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to mtrradio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android Market and iPhone App Store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> MTR Radio. 
Show, man. This is John P. Aliyev. Sorry about that. I was just coming in from a commercial break, but glad to have you a part of the program. Okay, great. Hey, welcome aboard, man. Uh, listen, uh, <clears throat> you, got a, you got a chance, obviously. You know, you went to the University of Alabama. We're going to start out. We'll get a little little bit of college football before we get into the baseball thing. You uh, you feel like Alabama is going to be able to do it this year? Well, I, <laughs> of course I do. I mean <laughs> – um, yeah, I think they will. This is not one of their – if this was last year's team, it would be close. But they're young this year. They only have nine seniors. I think they'll do it because, you know, Saban's such a tremendous coach, and they have, I think, collectively better players than Notre Dame. So, yeah, I think they'll do it. Yeah, I think so, too. I just think I think Notre Dame – listen, they've had a good season, but I think if you mat- if you match the talent level, you know, one team against the next – I think I think Alabama has the advantage. I think we'll see that this Monday. I think that is a, a great assessment. I think it's going to be a defensive 14-10 game. That's going to be the final score. That's <laughs> yes, my buddy Tony Felder is joining the program today too. So uh, you got two of us in here. What I, what will I think the final score will be? It's going to be 14-10. That's what, I, what I'm guessing. What do you think? Oh, 14-10 now. Well, that's a, that's a good guess. And I really think Notre Dame does have a, a – a, a chance to win the game, by the way. Um, I was thinking more like maybe 24-10 Alabama. Uh, I, I think they'll pull away from them late. They'll wear them down just like they have everybody else. Um, Notre Dame has a great front seven, but <clears throat> I don't think anybody could convince me that they have that much better of a front seven than does Georgia yeah, oh, or uh, oh. some of the other teams that they came up against, LSU. Now, I think it's fair enough. Now, once again, this is John Pielli, Tony Felder. We're here with Dustin Moore, former outfielder for the Twins, amongst some other teams. Tell us a little bit about uh, you know you coming up with the uh, with the Twins. You know, you made your debut in two thousand one. Tell us a little bit about the beginning part of your career with the Twins. Well, it was, uh, it was pretty simple. I got drafted by the Indians, and uh, I'll try to make this short. But uh, at that time, they had an all star in every position at the big league level. Uh, so regardless of how well you did at whatever level, minor league level you were at, there was no room to move. And it just became a situation where, you know, I'm stuck in single-A ball for, you know, I did as much as I could do in two years and was going back for a third year and just politely, you know, brought it to their attention that, hey, it's <laughs> really not only am I an A-ball for the third year, but you have great players ahead of me and already at the big league level, it would be possible for me to get a release. So I was granted that, went to the Twins, um, had a good year at the Florida State League level, which was A-ball for the third year, but then went to double-A the next year and won the batting title. Led from start to finish. Um course during that year of 01 I got called up and was uh, at, at the big league level from um, August of uh, 01 to uh, through uh, 2005 before kind of going up and down with Boston and Tampa there at the end yeah no question now as you go through with those Minnesota teams you you know Ron Gardenhire was your manager and those were teams that were always known to be scrappy and you know regardless of how some people viewed the talent level at times. 
they were always competitive. They were always competing for a, for a division title. They won a couple division titles and stuff like that. Tell us a little bit about being part of those teams. Well, those were the best teams. Those were the best teams, uh, uh, per, uh, as far relative to the definition of team um, that I was ever a part of. Um, we didn't. I think what we were able to do in my years in Minnesota, and even the years you know after I was there, um, is that we we play as a team. You don't really need talent. You don't have to caught up. You don't have to get caught up like the Yankees do uh, in Boston and some of these other teams where they just want to pay to get a collection of talent. Uh, and feel like that's just going to run the, you know, you're going to run them out on the field and uh, win every year, which they do during the regular season, but they don't win the World Series every year. Um, those teams that do that don't. And I think, um, you know, being a part of those teams, uh, you know, that's that's the way that I would always, you know, teach teach the game or or. or, or say that I would want things to be uh, if I ran an organization. Uh, you know, a lot of emphasis on team, fundamentals, defense. Um, you know, and you just it doesn't matter what your name is. If you play as 25, you're better than any one individual player. Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell you, one thing is funny that me and, you know, Tony and I were talking about this before because Tony's a big-time Yankee fan. And he's got this, he's got this feeling in his head that he really feels – his team should have an all-star at every position. Every year. And then I made the comparison of the, you know, the 1996 Yankees, the 1998 Yankees, who, yes, the 98 Yankees started to bring in better players at each position, but the 1996 Yankees won the World Series because they were the best team, not the best group of individuals. And if you look at a lot of individuals that were on that team, none of them were really not, – not too many of them were really star players, but they were the best team. Well, exactly, at that time. I mean – you had a Scott Brocious, you had a Brocious, you had a Shane Spencer, you had, uh, you know, I know Paul O'Neill was probably an all-star, but he was a team guy, you know, a scrappy guy. You had Chuck, Chuck Knobloch, who I know was a rookie of the year and probably an all-star, but at that time, you know, it was just about Tino Martinez, uh, the ultimate team guy, uh, even though, you know, he's an all-star and things like that, but... Uh, you know, if you can put together that kind of team attitude, that sort of I'm going to do uh, whatever it takes to help the team attitude with a guy that has superstar talent. He got something special, uh, and I think that what you've seen since those years, when they were the sort of a dynasty, uh, if you will, uh, is that they've just become a collection of talent. And yeah, I guess they've won one uh, here recently, but how many have they won out of the last ten? No, you're right. Just yeah, the one. Just one. Yeah, I tell you, I'm gonna I'm gonna run with this, man. As you, as you move on, you got teams like the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, the Los Angeles Dodgers, even to some extent the Detroit Tigers, teams that seem to be year after year accumulating top star players to add on to the top star players that they got. Do you think these teams are doomed in any way, or do you think that they, you know, have a chance to just be the greatest collection of players that are assembled? Well, I don't. That's a good question. I don't think that they're doomed. I think it, it's all relative to what kind of guys are you bringing in? Not what kind of player, what kind of talent are they? What kind of people are you bringing in to your team? What kind of people are you putting together? Um, 
you know, and let me rewind for a second. I mean, with the Twins, I mean, with the way that we did it, uh, or the way that I shouldn't say we, I was a player, but uh, uh, Tom Kelly and Ron Gardenhire and uh, all, of, all the ones in the front, Terry Ryan in the front office, the way that they did it, there are some limitations because, um, at time, you know, maybe we could have gotten over the hump while I was there with one or two more pieces that were, uh, you know, maybe all-star cal- caliber caliber players, but um, uh, but at the same time, I would rather have it that way than how the Yankees do it. Now, back to your question, um, I think it matters more what what type of players you bringing in. If you want to bring in all stars at every position, that's fine, but make those positions be the one through five starting rotation. If uh, you follow what I'm saying, yeah, I mean, exactly. You want to bring in a bunch. You want to collect a few, some talent. Collect five good starting pitchers. Then you got something. Yeah, well, the, the uh, Phillies tried that. Didn't work with them. Who did? The, the Phillies. They, they, the they Phillies. Tried, yeah, they tried. Well, I'll tell you what. They play in a crackerjack ballpark. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolute joke that you can go in there. I mean, I could hit balls out of there left-handed. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know that stadium being that that small. And I'm not even sure that the dimensions they have on their fence are correct. I think it's a little shorter than that even. But, hey, you know, I, I can see both sides to the debate. Um, but I just think there's more proof in favor of the teams that, decide, that, that go the direction of playing as a team than there are the teams that go in the direction of just collecting talent and throwing it out there because – there's a lot to be said for team chemistry, and I know not everybody subscribes to that theory, uh, but that that is it is vital uh, to to your organization, in in my point of view. Yeah, yeah, no question. I'm gonna play devil's advocate with you for a second, because you got you know, let's say like I'm gonna make an example, and I'm not like I'm not singling out this team at all, but you know, let's say let, let's say you're the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, you have your left fielder being what what it is. And you say, all right, this offseason we have the chance to bring in Josh Hamilton. Who, Who's their left fielder? Vernon Wells this year? Yeah, I think yeah, it was yeah, Vernon Wells. You know, a couple other guys were in there. And maybe some other ones. Yeah, okay. Now, now you have a chance to upgrade and bring in Josh Hamilton. Obviously, you look at Josh Hamilton, the player, you say, listen, he's, he is one of the top players in the game. You know, the amount of offense that he could bring to your team is, is, certainly, is certainly worth adding to any team. Now, do you think do you think a move like that could set a team back, or can you can you like optimistically say, all right, well, I'm probably putting thirty to forty home runs into the lineup where I didn't have before? Well, I think uh, it can certainly help. Um, with Josh Hamilton, he's a great talent. He's a good player. Uh, he plays both sides of the ball. Uh, he's not just a good hitter. You know, the one thing that I that drives me nuts is when people say, oh, he's a great player, when they're talking about a guy that can hit. <laughs> you know, and I know that he couldn't catch a cold out on defense. You know what I mean? That's not a great <laughs> player. That's a great hitter, you know? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, right. Josh Hamilton, is, uh, he's an impact player. I think that Josh Hamilton is not a guy that you want to be um, the guy to carry your team. Um, but I think that you that he is a guy that you definitely would like to have in your lineup um, because of, of what he's capable of doing. And I, I don't really think that – I think the only way that it could set you back is if you sign him for too many years. 
Now, do you, do you think my my feeling is that what you'll see with Albert Pujols is that's what will set them back more than than signing a Josh Hamilton yeah. for what he signed for five years. Yeah, yeah five years, one twenty five. Yeah, I, I would never sign anybody for more years than that. Yeah, I think with Pujols, the first five years they're going to get the most out of him. The next five, he's going to start breaking down. Yeah, now I, actually, I think I well, look at, I look at the Hamilton contract and I actually think it was a good deal for the player. I mean, to get him for five years as opposed to you know eight to ten like you know Prince and uh, you know Pujols got. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a good deal. Well, Prince yeah, is still I think young. I, the, the problem I have with baseball uh, front office people that make these decisions uh, is that in baseball they pay you based on what you did already. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So then they, what they end up paying for is a lesser version of what you already have done. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. They won't pay you because they, they can control you for those first three years. They use that to their advantage, right? So rather than taking a guy like uh, um, uh, Longoria in Tampa, yeah, you can okay. see fairly quickly what type of player he's going to be. Why not pay him that kind of money now? Yeah, why he's in his prom? Why wait until he's 35 years old to give him a 10-year contract because, you know, because of what he's done for the last 10 years? Now, I actually think that's an you excellent know, and then, point. And then what you end up getting is a player that is half of what he just was. Yeah, but you paid him. You paid him for for what he's already done, not what he's going to do. Yeah, it's almost like a, it's almost like making up for what he, what he didn't get paid at the beginning, and then right. you know it's, paying for something that you're not getting. Yeah, I mean it's like one of those uh, reverse mortgages that you know Robert <laughs> Wagner's trying to sell you. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me, and I just think you know Albert's a great player. Uh, you know he's a great hitter. Um, he certainly is. Uh, and pretty improved, had had improved at defense. I'm not sure, you know, if he can stay healthy enough to play a lot of defense now. I mean, if I might say, uh, but uh, that kind of contract to anybody, I don't care how good they are uh, or perceived to be, it can set a franchise back. I think the Josh Hamilton contract was perfect. I think it was too. Five years, paying a bunch of money, you'll get at least three of those five years will be. You know, productive years. Yeah, I'm thinking three of those five years will be all star years. No, exactly. Well, you, might, you, you might think so, but hey, let's not kid ourselves. The all star game is a popularity vote, yeah, not is. necessarily <laughs> yeah. who deserves to be in there. <laughs> yeah, I do agree with that. <laughs> hey, well, <laughs> hey, one thing I, one thing I want to ask you. I mean, you look at, and I do want to get onto this this contract thing because I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, do you think that there's a team, let's say, like there's a team that's looking for an upgrade in a certain spot? But may not be able to pry that player away unless they overpay. You know, is there is there a situation where that could actually be good, where a team like you know may may not be able to give, you know, get a player by saying, let's say, if I go five years and the other team goes five years, the other team's getting them. If I go up and I up the ante for another year or two and may not get the maximum value out of this player, would it be a better situation for that team to go overboard to get a player in certain situations? I, you know what, I can I understand where you're coming from, and I understand that way of thinking. Um, my opinion would be, uh, why? Um, why put, why overpay, even though, I understand your point to, I get it, you know, you may have to overpay to get him to come there as opposed to somewhere else, but that's just one guy. 
you know, in the history of baseball, I'm pretty sure that it's taken more than just the one guy to win. So I think that you have to evaluate, yeah, I may have to overpay to get him, and yeah, he could have a big impact, but what really, how big of an, how much of a difference is he going to make because he's just the one person, okay? So why not take that $20 million and, and give it to two or three guys? Maybe individually speaking, they're not at the level that, that that one person, that one player is. But those three guys together are going to always be better than just the one guy. Does that make sense? Here? No, 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 I mean, no, 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 no it absolutely sense. does. I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I see, and and obviously, you know, a guy like Scott Boris or some of the other you know agencies and stuff like that have 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 pretty much uh, you know pretty much prayed. On teams that need certain have certain needs, and they'll go and they'll sell their guy to say, "Listen, you need a first baseman. It's bad. You bet you better get involved in this." The team's like, "Hey, I think we do," and they end up overpaying, and that's that's really what you see happening overall in Major League Baseball. Not only for you know the last couple of years, but you know the last maybe twenty years. Well, I tell you, you're exactly right. But you know, I have a lot of respect for the Scott Boris's of the world and whatnot. Because he's doing what his job is is required what's yeah. required of his job, and that is get the best deal you can for the player. Now, nowhere in his job description is he trying to do what's best for a team. <laughs> Absolutely, he's not. trying to yeah. convince them that it would be best for <laughs> yep, their exactly. team. Yep, exactly. And once he does that, then he wins. Right, because he has an ulterior motive. The problem is these teams they they're the one they don't have to pay it. Mm. You know, if they if if. <laughs> I'm certainly not suggesting collusion because that's a touchy subject in baseball. But exactly. I'm just saying they don't have to. They can lead by example. I don't care how good you think you are. I'm not paying you 10 million, 10 years, and 200 million dollars. It's just it's not worth it. And that's throughout history, it has shown to not be worth it. I mean, you, I guess maybe you could say it was worth it for a Rod. The Yankees won a World Series with him. Yeah, but, but do you really think do you really think it was worth it? No, because we're stuck with the rest of that contract. <laughs> no, it's I not mean, look at what, look at what he uh, look what a Rod is now is still better than eighty five percent of the league. I mean, but yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Do I mean, you want to pay him as a as a hitter, and he's a damn good defender too. Yeah, but he's, I mean, he's not a thirty million dollar a year guy now. I don't think no, he, no, not, not right now. They absolutely, agreed, they agreed to pay it. Yeah, I that's know. what I'm saying. If no one, if no one. In the league, if everyone said, no, you're out of your mind, we're not paying this, they would have been forced to take less money. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Once again, this is the Pass Ball Show. I'm John Pielli. I'm here with Tony Felder. Wilson Caseo has joined us. And, of course, I have on the phone Dustin Moore, former Major League outfielder for the Twins and the Rockies. I, I want to get into this one question, man. Do you think, you know, along the line of what you've been saying, is there going to be any time where ownership, not necessarily on a collusion level, but gets to a point where we're like, listen, we cannot afford to pay these players what we're paying and committing these contracts to them. Do you see that gradually going back, or is this overpay system, which has been in effect for the league for the last 20 or so years, going to continue to be the norm? No, it's going to continue to be the norm, and here's why, in my opinion. Because as fans and as an ex-player, uh, we're more concerned about what's best for the team in terms of the product on the field, wins and losses, right? The people that make these decisions, they think in terms of how much money can I make. So they're always going to find a way to justify paying an Albert Pujols 10 years and $300 million 
because they'll just tell you that, well, we'll get that back in revenue from fans coming to watch this player play and buying jerseys, et cetera. And that's how they're always going to justify it. So in my opinion, it's always going to be around because they're never going to just – they're never just going to say, look, this is ridiculous. It's out of hand. We can't keep paying players like this. Um, you know, and in my opinion, the players union would get so mad at me for saying this, but I absolutely think there should be a salary cap in baseball. Um, I think there should be a floor, and I think there should be a ceiling. Um, Do you because think- what happens is this doesn't, these kinds of contracts, the Pirates can't ever, they could never pay the kind of money that some of these guys are getting. Oh, no, no. That doesn't mean that they can't win because you can also use that as an excuse to just be a, a perennial loser. You know, well, we can't pay the same kind of money. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, it's always going to be around to answer your question. I don't think it's ever going to it's ever gonna back down at all. No, it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. Now, listen, I appreciate you having some time to call into the show. Hopefully, I can get you on sometime in the near future. Definitely great stuff, Dustin. Absolutely. I'm sorry that I'm such a blowhard and probably took all more time than what you wanted me to. But I, I thank now, you listen, you know, you know what it means? It means I have to have you on the show again, man. It means we have to, <laughs> we have to rehash some stuff. We'll get into some different things. And I definitely want you back on the show sometime, man. Okay, guys, appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Hey, 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 Justin, are you doing anything? You got a website? Anything you want to put? You, you want to? Uh, no, I actually I don't. I wish I was cool and had something to set, uh, a website or or something for you guys to uh, to talk about, but I don't currently. Are you on Twitter? Um, I am on Twitter, but I'm not real active on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, that would be uh, at dmore at Dustin Moore twenty two. All right, man. See, my, uh, we'll definitely follow you on Twitter. We'll get you some more followers today, man, so you can kind of kind of okay, work it well, out. Okay, I'll tell you bit. what. I'll start. I'll get. I'll get more active on that. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't the biggest name, and uh, when I played, but but damn it, I could play. I'm telling uh, you that right. Listen, now. dude, so, you got you got one important thing, man. It's a personality and opinion. And I'll tell you, man, <laughs> I, that 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 voice could right. get out there and reach a lot of people, man. So hopefully, hopefully, we get to speak to you sometime in the future, Dustin. Thanks a lot, man. Absolutely, anytime. Thank you. Hey, take care, man. That was Dustin Moore, former Major League outfielder for the Minnesota Twins. A little bit with San Francisco, Colorado, Boston, and Tampa Bay before he hung it up, but definitely got in some good opinions. And I do want to welcome to the show Wilson Casado. Thank you, thank you. And uh, you know, you got a chance to listen to a good part of the Dustin yeah, Moore interview. Definitely. And you know, listen, I, I think I think it's a problem in in uh, not only baseball but sports, man. You got salaries, and you know, you got the you know the large market teams that are always going to gravitate towards the you know all the higher priced players and. You know, small market teams kind of losing. But one thing I did want to get in on, and, you know, Tony, definitely feel free to, to chime in with this, is, uh, you know, is Major League Baseball doing the right thing with this, uh, you know, $189 you know, uh, million dollar kind of kind of luxury tax threshold and kind of taxing the teams that are over it? Is that something that's going to be able to maybe bring the competitive balance back to what it needs to be salary-wise? That's sort of like a, it's sort of like a salary cap. It, it is, sort of and, like, I, and like honestly, a, I, I've like seen it's the, close, it's the closest thing that they've had to a salary cap ever. Yeah. I call it a salary cap because, you know, if you see what the – and you guys obviously are both Yankee fans, the, the, Yankee, the Yankees are holding themselves to it. They're, they're at a point where they're – listen, they, they don't want to be if, 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 if over at all, over $189 million, you know, after next season. So they're, they're playing this like it's their last year to be – that much over, they're going to look to you know develop players in the farm, look for cheaper deals and bargains and stuff like that. And it's 
that's something that's almost like sacrilegious to a Yankee yes, fan. Yes, I mean, you guys, is. you guys got to be almost, you know, I'm ready to blow, dying over this. <laughs> I mean, you see, you see the team spend and spend and spend, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, you know, listen, man, we could, we're just gonna go with what we got. I'm actually, personally, I'm actually pretty ready for it. You know, the yeah. team's gotten old. You know yeah. what I mean? Yes. And, and it's because of these bad contracts. Yeah. You, you guys brought up some great points. They talked about this when uh, the Derek Jeter contract came up. We're not yes. paying you for the next five years yeah. for what you did the last year. Yeah, you know, and actually that's contract. a perfect example. You know what I mean? We're now doing it for what we think your value yeah. is. And it's the same thing. You look at Alex Rodriguez. If Alex Rodriguez was in the open market right now, he'd be getting Nick Swisher money. Yeah. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, He's not getting yeah. 22, 23 yeah. million. Yeah. He's getting Swisher money. But, you know, they put themselves in that hole, and you guys are right. It is it is a soft salary cap now. That's basically what it is. I, I, uh, like Dustin said, I don't think they'll ever get a real cap because the players union will no, never allow yeah, it. Yeah, and especially, yeah, I mean, even with, uh, you know, even with Michael Weiner, you know, in charge of the players union now, he still holds a lot of the same standard. And, of course, before him, Marvin Miller. And, and I mean, listen, once, once, they, once they changed it from the way it was in the 70s and obviously earlier than that, and that's going to kind of segue me into this last point here because we got about five minutes or so. You know, I wrote I wrote in my blog the other day talking about you know really what happened with Kurt Flood and how he really kind of took the hit for the whole you know all the rest of the players that played with him you know and afterwards you know he sacrificed his whole whole career for pretty much free agency to be what it was just because he refused to report to the Philadelphia Phillies. Now could could you could you guys see the things getting to where where it is now? without somebody like that standing and really kind of just putting his own career in jeopardy for the sake of everybody else? No. Because I'm sure that's not what he intended to do. Yeah, probably no. not. I don't see any player even doing that right now. Yeah, because, I mean, even from his own perspective, and, of course, you know, Kurt Flood is, you know, long since passed, but, yeah. you know, he, he, he's, he's a guy who was a very prideful player. He played very hard for a team, and, you know, if you followed him, in, you know, obviously you guys haven't either have I, but, you know, the way he played in the 60s for those Cardinals teams – he was a, he was a diehard player. He gave everything he had to the game. So you know, I, I couldn't have seen him say, "Listen, I'm going to just give up my career for everybody else." Yeah. And so it was a situation where he was traded to a team that you know, for for a couple of you know, a couple of the reasons, once being a little racially motivated, where you know, he he, he felt like the Phillies didn't really you know didn't didn't really appreciate the black player as much. Yeah. But you know, here, here's a, here's a guy that you know ends up giving up his career for that. And I don't think he intended that. He said, listen, I just don't want to report to this team. I want the opportunity to be able to go to what team I want to. I played 12 years in the major leagues, for yeah. Christ's sakes. You know, I, I, should have, I should have the opportunity to have teams, you know, that want me contact me and not me go to what, you know, what big man says I have to go, go to. to. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, the guy, the guy ended up doing a revolutionary thing when he probably didn't even intend to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now you get, you know, the, the, the players that are, you know, probably the other side of the spectrum. Where you got players that are overpaid, where you got you know an Albert Pujols getting ten years, Alex Rodriguez getting ten years, where nobody would have thought about giving a contract like that, yeah. and you know it wasn't until of course until the mid seventies where uh, Marvin Miller got together with Andy Messersmith, who was a pitcher for the Dodgers, and Andy Messersmith decided to play you know to pitch a year without a contract mm-hmm. because the way the contract system was set up, yeah. everybody was on a one year contract with an option for, for a second year. year. And the way that was set up was that, you know, after the one-year contract was up, the ownership and the organization would renew it with the, with the player so that option year would never kick in. So every, every owner would be aware of that and say, listen, every player is going to be signed. If we don't want you, we're going to cut you or trade you, but you're going to be on a one-year contract every year. 
And once Messersmith agreed to play a year without a salary, and the same thing for Dave McNally, they finally got their two players to say, listen, that option year just kicked in. They played a year on the option because they didn't have a contract. So they got to be free agents. Yeah. And that's when they took it to, of course, the, you know, the, the, the courts and stuff like that, and the arbitrator ended up ruling in favor of the players. And that essentially started free agency. And you had, you had the year before with the, the technicality of Charlie Finley and Catfish Hunter, you know, not, you know, have an issue, you know, a clause in his contract or something, which made him the first real free agent. But after that, you know, it wasn't until Messersmith and McNally were announced free agents that they uh, essentially put that in a collective bargaining agreement to get rid of the reserve clause. And I thought that I thought that was real interesting. You ever get a chance to do some research on it? I mean, that's it shows a whole history how players for years got friggin' screwed. I mean, I mean the the way these the way these players were treated. A guy like uh, you know Ralph Kiner who won the home run title a year before. They say, listen, we finished last place though. You can finish <laughs> last place without you. You either take this contract oh, or, or, or or you're done. Well, the players are making up for it now with the contracts yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> you know the the real the the real shame is it's what's killing the game in that aspect is the agents at this yeah. point. Oh, exactly. Because yeah. you, you guys said they're only in it for the top yeah. dollar for their yeah. client. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I kind of like when uh, when a player you know is having trouble in negotiations and take the bull by the horn and says, "Listen, I'm going to negotiate yeah. myself." Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Until we yeah. see more of that, I don't think anything changes. Yeah. And, and I tell you, I I think. And I, and I and I and like you guys may disagree with me here, but I actually see it kind of coming back a little bit, because if you look at the situation now with Josh Hamilton, yes, Josh Hamilton, you know, does have some outside issues that may impact the team for signing him for let's say eight to ten years, but he ends up signing a five-year contract. Yes, the pitchers, starting pitchers, are starting to get paid probably more than they ever have, yeah. but position player-wise. I'm very interested in to see what what happens in the next couple of years yeah. when it comes to similar free agent position players. Are they going to be able to get nine years like Prince Fielder got or ten years like Pujols got? I don't know. I mean, because you got those same teams that are in the mix that may have certain players at certain positions. Yeah, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but now you get to see, especially like with the Yankees, money no longer buys you a championship. No, it doesn't. You know, it, it it guarantees that you're going to be able to. Uh, make up for some of the the bad contracts that yeah. you that you give to guys because you can bring another guy in and stuff like that, which will give you a better shot to make the playoffs. But it no longer means you're gonna you know be in that World Series yeah. anymore. Yeah. Now listen, absolutely, man. Listen, I want to thank you guys for coming in here, and uh, absolutely anytime, brothers. Thank you. you. Know, I appreciate uh, you know appreciate you guys doing what you do. Uh, you know, thanks to uh, let me just remember my guest real quick, uh, Dwayne Hosey, uh, Joey Baboots. Uh, Dustin Moore, and, of course, Steve Braun, Tony Felder, Wilson Casado. Uh, thanks, everybody, a lot for having some time today at Pass Ball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Uh, feel free to join me next week, 5 to 7 p.m. on Thursday. And, of course, stay tuned to the MTR Radio Network for a lot of great programming we got here. Of course, uh, Wilson hosts the show, The Loaded Backfield, which is on Monday and Wednesdays from 12 to 1. And, you know, let's tune in, man. You can also follow me on Twitter, Tony underscore Felder. <laughs>